Uh, very excited about beginning this series and um, we'll begin a journey through this gospel. It was great to finish Mark uh, some six months ago now. Uh, we looked at Ruth as well, we looked at Psalms, we had some wonderful guest speakers and Andrew did a great job there as well. We looked at two topical series, you remember, one on the church and then we just completed last week uh, that full alert level four lockdown series for such a time as this. And this morning I want to begin what I pray will be a tremendous blessing to our walk with Christ. You know, one may think, why another gospel? Well, it doesn't take long at all to see that there is a stark difference uh, between the Gospel of John and each of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, 90% of what appears in the Gospel of John is not in the other three Gospels. There's, for example, zero parables in John. Uh, there's no mention of the transfiguration in John. There's no account of the inaugurating of the Lord's Table communion in John. There's no recounting of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in John, each of which of those are uh, paramount to the other Gospels in unfolding their uh, purpose and intent. The other Gospels have as their central theme the kingdom of God, and that's altogether absent from John. So all that to say, John mentions things that are not found in the other Gospels, and obviously other things mention things that aren't found in John. But inside the 21 chapters of John, there is a truckload of theology and an insight into Christ that really is exclusive to John's gospel. And so for those reasons and more, I believe it will be significantly beneficial for us to once again have Jesus front and center. Mark's gospel was incredibly rich, and I know that John will be also, you know, Calvin said of John's gospel, the other gospels, he said, present us with Jesus' body, but John presents us with Jesus' soul. Interestingly enough, and just from a geographical perspective, much of Mark, for example, as we saw, and each of the other gospels are centered around Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which was in the north, whereas John focuses in on Jesus' ministry in Judea and Samaria, which is in the south. But that's just primarily geographically. You know, John is referred to as the fourth gospel, right? For obvious reasons. D.A. Carson's commentary on Mark really is one of, or the magnum opus when it comes to commentaries on Mark. And he points out, quote, The fourth gospel contains a series of opposites that are much stronger than in the other gospels. Life and death, from above and from below, light and dark, truth and lie, sight and blindness, and more, end quote. The author of the Gospel of John is obviously John. But which John? There's a few Johns in Scripture. The John of this Gospel never uses his own name in it, but he does refer to himself as, we know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles very quickly to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and we'll, as we begin to just set the scene about who this John is. Mark chapter 3 there. Jesus here is choosing, summoning, 
the twelve disciples. And look at verse 16 of Mark 3. It says, And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. <laughs> Why did Jesus call these two brothers, James and John, the sons of thunder? I mean, he had, for the most part, just met them. He hadn't spent really a great deal of time with them. But if you go back to John now and look at chapter 2 with me very quickly, we'll be hopping in and out around our Bibles a lot this morning. This introduction to the Gospel of John will be more like a Bible study. And so look at verse 23 of John chapter 2 with me. It says this, Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus, we see from there, knows what is inside the heart of each person. He knows the attitude, he knows the motives, he knows the temperament of all people. And it was no different with John. Jesus called John a son of thunder for a reason. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9 and I'll show you. Luke chapter 9. And it says there, look at verse 51 of Luke 9. When the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messages on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they, that's the Samaritans, it says there in verse 53, did not receive him. In other words, they rejected him. Because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Look at, look at verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. He turned and rebuked them, these sons of thunder. John, with his brother, showing there they were given to hasty, emotional, overly passionate, overly zealous, reactionary responses. And so when you take into consideration all of John's writings, and he wrote an incredibly large chunk of the New Testament. I mean, he wrote this gospel, he wrote three epistles, and then, of course, he wrote the grand book of Revelation. When you take all that into account, you begin to see that this passionate disciple... This son of thunder, this one who was given to being overly zealous, overly passionate, he became a tempered and measured disciple. Now, please don't take tempered and measured to mean timid and not bold. Because in John's writings, he spoke very strongly 
in multiple denunciations of false teachers, false doctrine, in his epistles particularly he did this, which were written even as an older saint. And so please don't take tempered and measured to mean timid and lacking boldness and courage. Yet what we see evidenced in John's life was wisdom that increased as he beheld the glory of the Lord Jesus. And that wisdom manifested itself in John knowing what needed to be said in the given moment. He went from calling down thunder in haste to growing to be one, unafraid to speak the truth, even boldly, yet discerning wisely how to do so and doing so in a measured and tempered way. I personally take encouragement from that the lord works on us we are ever changing by his grace as we look to christ and behold him and strive to honor him and so that's a little bit about the author of this gospel and this morning before walking beginning to walk through the actual gospel expositionally verse by verse i want us to take time this morning as an introductory to this gospel to look first at the purpose of John, why we have the gospel, second, the person of John, who it is that the gospel focuses on, and then third, the presentation of John, what it is that the gospel teaches, the purpose, the person, and the presentation. The idea will be that we have an introduction to this book this Sunday, Andrew will then, as he always does, serve us well, Lord willing, this coming Sunday, the one to come, and then we'll kick off chapter 1, verse 1, Lord willing, the Sunday after that, and Lord willing, even perhaps in alert level 2. So first, let's consider number 1, heading number 1, the purpose of John. And so turn with me now to John chapter 20 in your Bibles, John chapter 20. And look at verse 30. Therefore, many other signs, verse 30 of John chapter 20, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these have been written so that, that's a purpose clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, look ahead with me to the very last verse of the entire gospel, probably on the same page or just one page over. Look at verse 25 of John 21, the very last verse. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that could be, that would be written. Now, if you keep in mind John chapter 20 verse 31 that we just read, at first glance, I'll admit until this week, I had only ever taken this to mean that the purpose for which John writes this gospel, is solely salvific, meaning solely evangelistic. That is true, and that's crucial, yet that's only part of its purpose. You see, verse 31 contains a dual purpose. Look there again. 
verse 31. These things have been written, number one, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the evangelistic purpose. And then number two, and in believing you may have life in his name. That's another purpose, which I will touch on in just a moment. You see, John presents all the truth of Christ, all the blessings from Christ, the salvation exclusive to Christ, and he is writing, no doubt, for there to be a verdict in the heart of a person. Having been presented with all the evidence, will you now receive Jesus Christ as Lord? The heart of the human author is the same as the heart of the divine author. Believe in the Son. Yet that's not the exclusive sole purpose. You see, not only is John calling for a verdict, he is also writing so that one having believed will continue on in perseverance and live in the victory that is ours through Christ. So the purpose is to get a verdict evangelistically, and the purpose is also to live out the victory, which is ours in Christ experientially. So the purpose is evangelistic and the purpose is experiential. John was written so that we would believe and it was written so that we would keep on believing. It was written to reach unbelievers with the good news of Christ and it was written to provide counsel and comfort to the believer. The dual purpose. That's wonderful. It's an overflow of God's love for his people. He tells the world to believe, and then he aids and equips those who believe. That's important to grasp and important to think upon. Why? Because saving faith, as has been well said, is not the be-all and end-all. It's not the goal. The, the, the goal, though the goal is to believe in Jesus, that is not the ultimate goal. You see, believing in Christ is the means by which we attain the ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal is our final, personal, even as Carson put it, eschatological salvation. Meaning, we are to live out our faith all of our life. And the way in which we do that is first by receiving Jesus as Lord by faith and then living out that faith. By receiving and beholding all of Christ's glory. And his glory is revealed, perhaps like nowhere else, in the pages of the Gospel of John. And John, he does so primarily by showing us that Jesus is God. And in him being God... The glory of God is disclosed. The glory of God is manifest through the Son. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each have their own purpose, right? Matthew presents Jesus as king. Mark presents Jesus, as we saw, as the suffering servant. Luke presents him as a man in his humanity. John as Jesus being God incarnate, the glory of God revealed. So that's the purpose. That leads us to our second heading this morning as we introduce the Gospel of John. Heading number two, we see now the person of Jesus. This is no surprise, right? The Gospel has one central figure, the Lord Jesus. 
He's the good news. He is the hope for the world. He is the Lamb of God. Now, John does not, as I mentioned at the very beginning, does not focus on Jesus' life and ministry like the other Gospels do. Compared to the other Gospels, John spends little to no time writing of what Jesus said or what Jesus did as he went about the place. But he writes far more on who Jesus is. John was written after each of the other Gospels. And it's almost as though, by divine design, John presents the interpretation of the words and actions of Jesus that you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then presents those interpretations of those actions and words. And let me show you. Take the concept of light, which appears multiple times in John. Take that concept first. Look at chapter 1 for a moment. Back to chapter 1 in John. As I said, I'm going to have you busy about the gospel of John this morning. Look at chapter 1 for a moment. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now flick ahead to John chapter 3 for a moment and look at verse 19. This is the judgment, Jesus says, that the light has come into the world and, the, and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, verse 20, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Go to chapter 8 now as we keep moving ahead. Look at John chapter 8 and look at verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at chapter 9 verse 5. Jesus said, while I am in the world... I am the light of the world. Now keep going to chapter 12 and look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. While you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you, that's a remarkable statement, he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, verse 36, believe in the light, look at this, so that you may become sons of light. John presents Jesus as the light. The other concepts, if we took time to look, John presents as themes bound up in the person of Jesus, life, witness, and glory, glory. In fact, this morning, as we introduce this gospel, I want us to survey that concept of glory in John. So back now to John chapter 2. And look at verse 11 of John chapter 2. Speaking of the miracle there at Cana, first miracle Jesus ever performed, verse 11 says, This beginning of his signs, 
John calls them signs. Other Gospels call them miracles. John calls them signs. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Key verse. Look at chapter 5, verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men, in verse 41. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and yet do not seek the glory that is in that is from, rather, the one and holy God. Jesus reveals the glory of God. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Flick ahead with me there. Jesus says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, remarkable statement, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus is saying there, he seeks the glory of the Father. He is not seeking the glory of himself. And this really affirms that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. For you recall, Jesus fulfills the Father's eternal plan of redemption by serving as Savior, as Messiah. There is no unrighteousness in him. Instead, there is a righteousness that we are credited with and clothed with remarkably. Look at John chapter 8 now, beginning in verse 50. Jesus says, but I don't seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Wow. They say to him, Abraham died. And the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Verse 53, they say to Jesus, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died also. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Look at verse 56. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad verse 56 is something else what, what a verse your father abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad we saw in our message from romans 8 last sunday that Abraham took his own son Isaac, didn't we, up the mountain as commanded by God. And before he was about to slay his own son, a messenger of Yahweh calls out, telling him to stop, saying that he had seen Abraham's faith. 
And we saw how the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, wrote about how Abraham saw that his son Isaac was a foreshadow of what was to come in the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is saying there in John chapter 8 to the Jewish religious elite, he's saying this, you want to kill me. You want to kill me, the one that your very own spiritual patriarch rejoiced in? And more than that, in verse 54, Jesus is saying there, the glory that I have is the glory that comes from the Father, the one you say is your God. And Jesus radiates the very glory of God in his person. And in John, the glory of God is not written so much to bring about praise from us to God, but rather the glory of God is written in John to reveal, to disclose who God is. And that revealing of who God is, is seen preeminently, predominantly, in the person of the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 11 now, and verse 4. Here you have Jesus being informed about his friend Lazarus being sick in verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not the end. This is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified by it. One commentator rightly remarked here, quote, If the death of Lazarus came about so that God's glory might be revealed... This particular revelation of God's glory is so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That is, the raising of Lazarus provides an opportunity for God in revealing His glory to glorify His Son. For it is the Father's express purpose that all honor should be given to the Son even as one honors the Father, end quote. Jesus said this exact thing in John chapter 5, verse 23. Let me read it for you. Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all who will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The self Disclosure of who God is is found in the revelation of the person of Jesus. And we are given by divine grace as believers eyes to see, ears to hear. That is, when we believe, we then have Jesus as Lord, who is then the very glory of God on display, set before us as believers with eyes open, unveiled faces to behold the glory of Jesus. Look at verse 40 now of John chapter 11. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, that's Martha, did, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Did I not say to you that when you believe, you will see the glory of God? 
This is what this gospel does like no other. It goes deeper. John's gospel goes beyond the works and the words and gets into the theological realities bound up in Christ's person. You see, when Jesus performed miracles, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, all those watching on could see that. But only believers, only believers can see the glory contained within it. Which is the Father's will of all people giving honor to the Son. John labors in his gospel to show the glory behind the acts of Jesus. So that we as believers might continually fulfill the Father's will. By honoring and adoring and having as our highest affection the Son. And thus behold His miraculous and transforming glory. We know from 2 Corinthians 3.18 that with unveiled face we behold the glory of the Lord. And in the beholding of the glory of the Lord, we then become more and more like Jesus from one level of His likeness to the next. Keep moving ahead now to John chapter 12 and look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said, this is what John is writing here, these things Isaiah said because he, that's Jesus, saw his glory and he spoke of him, referring to Jesus. We know this, Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, he sees the glory of God. Let me read it for you, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. All the earth is full of His glory. Read verse 41 again. These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory, referring to the Lord Jesus. And he spoke of Him, referring to the Lord Jesus. Isaiah saw Yahweh and His glory. John says there that Isaiah is speaking of Jesus. Deity and glory all in the person of Jesus. Look now at, verse, look now at John chapter 17. In verse 5, John chapter 17 may be one of the most remarkable portions anywhere in all of Holy Scripture. But look at verse 5 of John chapter 17. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here you have Jesus speaking about two different types of glory. Number one, in verse 5 here, number one, the glory that Jesus brought to the Father by accomplishing all the work that He was assigned by the Father to do. We know that the Father gave the Son a mission. We know that the Son fulfilled the mission. We know that the Father rewarded the Son by giving Him the name that is above every name, the title Lord. We know that there was a promise made in eternity past between the triune Godhead that if the Son fulfilled the Father's plan, He would be 
he would receive the nations as an inheritance. We, we understand that. The, the pactum salutis, the eternal decree, we understand that. Here you have Jesus saying, the glory that Jesus brought to the Father by accomplishing all the work that he was assigned by the Father to do, namely live and die and rise on the believer's behalf. Purchase for them the forgiveness of sins, purchase for them eternal life. That's the, that's the first type of glory Jesus is talking about. The second is the glory that Jesus is asking the Father to give him when he ascends back into eternal glory. Now, to drive that home, I need you to look back to John 13 for a moment. John 13 and look at verse 31. It says there in John 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. What had happened here is the Satan had entered Judas. Judas had gone out. Jesus is speaking here about on the very next day about he will be about how he will be crucified, and by being crucified, he will bring glory to God. That's what he's saying at the beginning there. For he'll bring glory in becoming obedient even to the death on a cross, where he will purchase salvation for his people. And therefore satisfy the judgment of God. That's how he'll bring glory to God. Not only crucified though. Jesus would bring glory to God by being raised from the dead. And then by ascending back to the Father. That is what he means when he says there. That the Father will glorify him immediately. Immediately. The glory of God or the majesty of God. Is made evident in the Son's obedience in suffering. The suffering as a substitute for his people. Jesus is, reveals God's glory, the Father's glory, because he reveals to the world the Father's plan. And in doing that, he brings glory to God the Father through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension back into glory. John always keeps the person of Jesus front and center throughout this gospel. Again, not so much the actions and the words like the other Gospels do, but instead he interprets, remember, the words and the actions and goes down below those words and actions to bring out the full expression of them theologically. John shows that Jesus discloses who God is and who God is propels us into greater adoration for our Father thereby giving greater honor and esteem to the Son with our very lives. We have a journey ahead of us, folks. In the Gospel of John, we need this, I need this, you need this. And so we've seen the purpose. We just had a peek at the person, really, just a peek. Now for the third and final heading as we introduce John's Gospel, I want you to see now the presentation of John. The presentation of John. By the word presentation, I am referring to what John teaches theologically in his gospel. John is referred to in the early church 
as not simply the apostle of love, because he wrote about love more than any other, but he's also known as the theologian. The theologian. Because John is enormously, the gospel is enormously theological. It is a book rich both in the basics theologically and the very best of theology. Tradition has it that the early church would apply an emblem to each of the gospels. Matthew had the emblem of a lion because it displayed Christ as king. And he is, right, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark had an emblem of a man because, as we saw, like Luke, it shows Jesus in his humanity. Mark presents him as the suffering servant. Luke's emblem was that of an ox because the ox, the early church said, was an animal that presented uh, and represented and illustrated suffering and sacrifice. John's emblem was an eagle, an eagle. That's what the early church ascribed to the gospel. And the reason they did that was because the eagle, it has the most penetrating eye. And they saw John as that gospel like no other, that had this piercing and penetrating gaze on the glories of the eternal God. And so they gave it the emblem of an eagle. And we're going to find out as a church family, that the early church, that our brothers and sisters there were accurate in giving this gospel such an emblem. John presents us with things like sovereign regeneration in chapter 3, presents us with the pre-existence and eternality of Christ in chapter 1, presents us with the eternal decree of God in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, the deity of Christ in countless places, the Holy Spirit's ministry in John 14, the disclosing of the glory of God as we just jet toured through before. But to give us just a quick glimpse, just by way of introduction, I want us to conclude by taking a snapshot at the Christology of John. The Christology of John. And bound up in Christology is theology proper, Trinitarianism, all sorts of wonderful things. That may seem a little confusing for now, but I assure you, as we wade through the Gospel of John, they'll become clearer and clearer and clearer. John gives us a robust Christology. The three essential components of a biblical Christology are, number one, a pre-incarnate Christ, meaning a pre-existent Christ. Number two, an incarnate Christ. And number three, a glorified Christ. So turn with me in this snapshot to John chapter 1 again. John chapter 1, the very familiar verse. John 1, 1, let me read it for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see there Jesus, who is described as the Word, the Logos, which will unfold all of that in a coming Sunday soon. Jesus is described here as being with God, and yet also as God. And so we learn immediately from that, that Jesus is, is both one with the Father and also distinct from the Father. And that part of Jesus' pre-existence, we see, is in triunity with the Father before the world was. Jesus was and is a distinct member of the 
triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is a wonderful doctrine that we'll get into in the coming days called the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. We need to understand this to understand what Jesus meant by places like John chapter 17, verse 22. For example, when he said this, The glory which you, saying to the Father, he said, The glory which you, Father, have given me, I have given to them. Eternal generation, in a nutshell, is the idea that in order to be able to distinguish between the members of the Trinity in eternity past. You see, when the Godhood, Godhead triune is in eternity past, you need to be able to distinguish between them. When Christ becomes incarnate, when the kenosis occurs, when He dwells among us, we can then begin to make distinctions. But we need to be able to make a distinction between the triune Godhead in eternity past. And the doctrine of eternal generation does that for us. And it helps us answer the question, what is Jesus talking about when He says there, the glory which you have given me, Father, I have given them. When Christ was pre-existent, there we need to understand that within the Godhead, so before God came, before Jesus came and dwelt among us when He was pre-incarnate, we need to understand that within that Godhead, that triune Godhead, there is what is called an ontological, that is, an internal relationship and distinguishing of the personal attributes of each of the three persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit within that Godhead. Theologians refer to this by stating that the Father generates or begets the Son. And then also, the Spirit then proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's all pie in the sky right now. I understand that. I expect that. But it will become dear and it will become clear as we go through John. You see, John... Chapter 5, verse 26, for example, Jesus says this, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. On, on a surface level, they're, they're confusing words at first, even second glance. But what our time in the Gospel of John will do, I promise you, my dear brothers and sisters, it will unearth for us the deepest of treasures. And we'll know our Lord Jesus on a new and deeper, profound level. Those words in John chapter 5, 26 that I just read show that it is the Father who generates life to the Son. Jesus is saying there that the Father possesses life in Himself, meaning that He is self-existent. But He also says of Himself, Jesus says, that He too is self-existent in verse 26 of John 5. Now we can ask ourselves, like Augustine did centuries ago, how did the Son receive life in Himself? Well, the answer is that because the Father eternally begets His Son, His only begotten Son. You see, the Son possesses life, and He possesses the divine essence, meaning the very being of God. And that was communicated to Him 
by the Father. Now, communicated is the proper term. And what I don't mean by that is that the Father speaks to the Son. No, no, no. What is meant by that is that the Father transmits or, or even gives to the Son divine attributes. He communicates His divine attributes to the Son. And that is what is meant by Jesus being God's eternally begotten Son. We've said it our whole lives. John 3.16. God's only begotten Son. But here it is beginning to unfold for us on a richer level. You know, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And we saw His glory. Glory as of what? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. So John, John's presentation is that Jesus was pre-existent. He was one with the Father and yet distinct from the Father. Second, we see in the gospel, John presenting us with the incarnate Christ. The one who came and dwelt among us. And you know, while Jesus was here on earth, incarnate as the God-man, he said and did a few things, right? Well, one of the things he said was in John chapter 15, verse 26. Let me read that for you. He said this, When the Helper comes, that's the Spirit of God, whom I will send to you, listen to this, I will send to you from the Father. That is, the Spirit of truth Listen to this, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. That is what is called the doctrine of the eternal procession. Another theological doctrine that the theologian John presents us with. Eternal generation that we just touched on very briefly is the Father begetting or generating the Son. And here is eternal procession where the Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. Now, that, when unfolded and explained in detail, which we'll get to, is some of the richest Trinitarian theology anywhere in Scripture. Another thing that we see in John is third, as we take a snapshot of the Christology presented to us in the Gospel of John. Not only do we see a pre-existent Christ in eternity past in the triune Godhead, not only do we see an incarnate Christ where He dwelt among us, we also see in John the glorified Christ. Jesus dies His sin-atoning death, and then He rises again as the glorified Christ. And so... When he rises again as the glorified Christ, you need to understand that he is still in possession of a recognizable human body. When Jesus ascends, he ascends with a recognizable human body, a glorified body. And in John chapter 20, turn with me there to John chapter 20, Jesus makes a remarkable statement. Turn with me there and then we're, then we're done. Look at verse 19 of John 20. So when it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, why were they fearful of the Jews? The crucifixion has taken place. The resurrection has taken place. 
Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. You know, they'd been on the road to Emmaus, right? Uh, same thing. They thought, we thought Jesus was going to be the one that was going to restore Israel. Jesus explains that to them. Well, here Jesus is now, and he appears to them, and they rejoiced. And so Jesus said to them, look at verse 21. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus is saying there in verse 21, just what he prayed the night before in his prayer in John chapter 17 to the Father, in John chapter 17 verse 18, which says, let me read it for you, it says this, And you, Father, sent me into the world, as you, Father, have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The glorified Christ, having fulfilled the Father's will, then sends us out to continue, by extension, the Father's will. And you know what? We will only do that. We will only live by giving honor to the Son, esteeming the Father. We will only do that when we are moved and motivated and compelled to do that. And the motivation... The motivation to live as salt and light in this world, that is, having a visible and tangible impact upon the world, and then, therefore, then thus fulfilling the mission given to us by the Son, it's found in the glory of God, as revealed by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. If you want to sum up, if you want to sum up the Gospel of John, it is the glory of God as revealed by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And as we see these deep truths by spending weeks and months and Lord willing years digging deep down into them, it is not a theology that we will adore, but a person. For the end of all theology is the adoration of a person. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the theology of John, written by John the theologian, points us to the person. In the beholding of his glory, which the gospel of John presents like no other, is found the motivation to live for his glory like never before. It was John Newton who is sadly more known for writing Amazing Grace than he is for being a pastor theologian. He wrote this, quote, The older I grow, the more I am drawn to preach much concerning the person, the atonement, the glory of the Savior, and the influences of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Newton is saying there, we must preach, we must grasp the high things of the person of Christ. We must grasp the glory of God and the, and the influences of the Holy Spirit. This gospel, 
the Gospel of John, reveals all of that on the deepest of level. You know, we have so exalted soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. We have so exalted the doctrine of salvation that we've just kind of written off Trinitarian theology and theology proper of who God is. Big God. We've written it off as being too heady, too hard, too difficult to understand. We've become experts in salvation, but we don't know the God who saves. And so our time in the Gospel of John, may God richly bless our time, forming in our minds a deep theology that ignites our hearts aflame like never before so that we might live for Him like never before. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and say thank You for this immense privilege. This time to take a, an altitude survey of this precious gospel. This gospel penned by the theologian, the one whom was a son of thunder and who grew in grace and knowledge and still remained bold, fearless, courageous, but was tempered and measured. May we take the example of your working in the life of John and be encouraged that you're working in our life. But help us to know that what brought about that growth was the forming in, our, in John's mind of a deep Christology, a deep Trinitarian theology, a rich theology proper, an incredible beholding of the glory of Christ in the person of Christ. And so help us to strive, not in our own strength, but by the power that mightily works within us, that you give us by your grace. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And Lord willing, we'll see you real soon. Thanks, God.